2022 is coming to an end. We're going to talk today briefly about some of the big stories we've covered in the past year, and we're going to look ahead to 2023. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. In the past year, this show has tried to examine in detail some of the biggest stories of the year, both in global politics and on the domestic front. Of course, as our listeners know, we have spent a great deal of time examining the crisis in Ukraine, the crisis before the Russian invasion of Ukraine that was on February 24th, 2022, but the crisis had unfolded for months in advance. We have been taking a look at this in great detail. And of course, we are supporting the anti-war movement that opposes the NATO war drive, examines and exposes the fact that the U.S. is in fact the one carrying out a war with Russia. It's a proxy war. Ukrainians and Russians are dying, but The U.S. military and the U.S. government are the force behind the war. They could end the war, but they have chosen, in fact, to escalate the war. And this war continues to grow with increasing dangers, not only for the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia, the people in Europe, but globally. It's had a profound impact on inflation, on food prices and energy prices in Europe and in the global south. We've also talked about the growing hyper-aggressive policy of the United States towards China. We examined Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, the growing effort by the U.S. to, quote, decouple or remove China from parts of the global economy. We've examined U.S.-Iran relations. We've taken a long look at the impact of the U.S. blockade on the people of Cuba and the nonstop war being waged by the U.S. government against the Cuban Revolution. And here we have the U.S. strengthening the blockade against Cuba with the, with the idea that if the Cuban people suffer enough, suffer enough shortages, that they will eventually rise up against the Cuban government, a, a form of collective punishment against an entire people. We've talked about Palestine, the nonstop fight of the Palestinian people against Great odds for self-determination, for independence, for sovereignty, the fight to be free of colonial domination. This show has also examined the ongoing struggle of the people in Korea. There is, of course, the struggle for democracy in South Korea and the struggle for workers' rights and social justice, not to mention the efforts by considerable parts of the population to improve relations with North Korea. And the other part of that struggle in Korea, very interconnected, is U.S.-North Korea relations. In the recent months, the U.S. and the South Korean military have resumed major military war games, war exercises that simulate 
the destruction of North Korea. And North Korea, in response, has been testing new weapon systems, new satellites, new intercontinental ballistic missiles. And that, in turn, has been used by Japanese militarism as a pretext to get rid of the so-called Article 9 pacifist clause that was imposed on the Japanese constitution at the end of World War II, such that Japan could re-enter openly as a major military power. These are big issues, all interconnected, but the Korean Peninsula remains a hotbed for conflict and for struggle, and we've tried to bring light, shed light, on the struggles going on in Korea. On the home front, we've been talking about the workers' movement, the growing movement of unionization in the North, in the South, in the East, in the West. It's all across the country. Young workers demanding rights. And of course, this is critical to the revival of the workers' movement and consequently the socialist movement inside the United States. We've paid careful attention to the assaults on basic democratic rights. Of course, the Dobbs decision and the evisceration of abortion rights. We've covered that in great detail. We've also talked about what the Supreme Court and the ultra-right have in mind next as they intensify efforts to carry out the elimination of voting rights, the imposition of racist voting requirements to disenfranchise Black communities in particular, but Black and Latino communities. As you all know, we have talked about the Moore v. Harper case, which the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on in December, and the Supreme Court will rule sometime this spring, which could have far-reaching impact, a far-reaching impact on the way government is formed in the United States. In the past year, we have been joined every week by Richard Wolff, esteemed economist, Marxist economist, who has helped us and our audience understand the biggest stories in the economy on a weekly basis. We've done all of this programming with great effort and great love because we care about it. We've done and organized this program, the socialist program, because we are helping to build a movement for radical transformation in the United States. We're not simply talking about these issues because they are quote unquote interesting, but we are trying to share information and analysis and perspective in order to help strengthen the progressive forces in society, the workers movement, the movement of young people, the people who are fighting for radical social change and fighting for peace. We're trying to provide information to challenge the dominant narrative that's presented in the ruling class media, the capitalist-owned media. It's part of the battle of ideas. And so our goal is not to have the left be some kind of niche subculture where people are basically talking to themselves, but where we, the movement, the movement for progressive radical change, the socialist movement, become leaders of the nation, speak as leaders of the nation, and are able to communicate our ideas, our narrative, our assessment, our analysis, and our solutions in a way that's persuasive, not simply to our family and to our friends, but to the vast working class in the United States. That's why we do this kind of programming. 
And again, we couldn't do it without our patrons, without people who subscribe every week. To those of you who have recently increased your the amount that you're donating with the subscription every week, we want to thank you. It makes a great deal of difference. More people are donating as patrons, but we need many, many more to do what this show requires in order to expand its reach. So if you like the show, if you rely on the show, do your part and become a patron today. And you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and becoming a subscriber. Of those big stories, I want to start the big stories of 2022. I want to start a little bit on Ukraine. We are witnessing a dramatic escalation of the war in Ukraine right now. The United States is sending billions, tens of billions of dollars more weapons to Ukraine. And clearly, Ukrainian battlefield successes are premised on having high technology weapons and having the intelligence from the Pentagon and the CIA and the NSA and by having an amazing level of military coordination and direction by the Pentagon. As Russia has not succeeded militarily on the battlefield, not that it's losing, but it hasn't succeeded, the Russians are also signaling that they are prepared to also increase or escalate the war. So you have Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure, meaning large numbers of people in Ukraine are losing light, they're losing heat. This war is escalating. And the astonishing part of it is that the U.S. government, the Biden administration, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, and the U.S. owned media, and the Congress, seem to be very content with the escalation. They actually wanted this war. That's what our argument has been from the beginning, because when they could see that the war was coming, when they actually even predicted that Russia would invade Ukraine, they did nothing, they changed nothing in their, their diplomatic stance that would prevent the war. Russia was saying, look, we have red lines. We are not going to let Ukraine become a staging ground for advanced weapons pointed at us with a short flight time on our very border, on the Russian-Ukrainian border, which is a very long border. That's not going to happen. And Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan basically said to the Russians, look, you don't tell us who can be part of NATO and you don't tell the Ukrainian government whether they can be in NATO or not. Your demands are non-starters. And so as a consequence, Russia predictably, as predicted by the American administration, intervened in Ukraine. Perhaps the Russians thought it would be a quick military operation that the pro-Russian parties in Ukraine or the parties in Ukraine that favor neutrality with Russia, and there's there were many, they've all been suppressed now by the Zelensky government, that they would take over. That clearly did not happen. The U.S. was long prepared for this war and maybe well more prepared than the Russians anticipated. But now the war has dragged on and on. The Russians are determined not to lose. The U.S. is determined to win. The logic there is towards escalation. On January 14th in New York City at Times Square, the Answer Coalition, the People's Forum, and now a longer list of progressive anti-war and peace organizations 
are coming together for a major demonstration demanding that the U.S. stop sending massive amounts of weapons to Ukraine, demanding that that money be spent instead for affordable health care, for education, for housing, for the things human beings actually need, rather than for endless NATO expansion and for nonstop war, proxy war with Russia. That's going to be at 12 noon, Saturday, January 14th. There will be other actions in other parts of the country. I know there's going to be an action in San Francisco, maybe in a couple other places. But if you're on the East Coast or near New York City, we know people are coming from Boston, from Philadelphia, from Washington, D.C., from upstate New York. Come to New York. There's going to be a demonstration 12 noon at Times Square. There will be a march in Midtown Manhattan, and it will be followed by an indoor rally. So keep that day, January 14th the Martin Luther King weekend. And I think it's very fitting that it be on Martin Luther King, on the Martin Luther King birthday celebration weekend, because Dr. King was the foremost advocate for peace. He was an opponent of the U.S. military machine. He said the three evils in society were racism, poverty, and militarism. And Dr. King has been turned into a an icon. We celebrate his birthday. It's a federal holiday. But we have to remember the real legacy and honor the real legacy of Dr. King. And that's to keep up the struggle against militarism, poverty, racism, and right now against the war, the proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. I want to take a moment also as we close out 2022 to say a few words more about COVID. I mean, this crisis could not have been more horribly managed by by the government. It wasn't just Trump. It was also the Democratic Party. It's also the capitalist system. Uh, the company that was making tests for COVID, the Abbott Company, started having all of its workers towards the end of 2021 work nonstop to destroy COVID tests. Yes, you heard me right. They made COVID tests, then they kept the workers employed to destroy the tests because they thought there was an insufficient demand for tests at that time because there was a dip in the number of COVID cases at that time. And then after the workers destroyed all of the kits, the tests that they had produced, they laid those workers off. Here's a story from the New York Times. For weeks in June and July 2021, workers at a main factory making one of the one of America's most popular rapid tests for COVID-19, were given a task that shocked them. Take apart millions of the products they had worked so hard to create and stuff them into garbage bags. Soon afterwards, Andy Wilkinson, a site manager for Abbott Laboratories, the manufacturer, stood before rows of employees to announce layoffs. The company canceled contracts with suppliers, and shuttered the only other plant making the test in Illinois, dismissing a workforce of 2,000. The, quote, numbers are going down, he told the workers of the demand for testing, saying it wasn't their fault. He said, quote, this is all about money. Of course, then later, COVID came roaring back. Millions of tests have been destroyed. I mean, this says so much, so much about the capitalist system, that capitalist producers only produce in order to, quote, satisfy the market, which means in order to maximize profits for their investors. 
not based on what society needs. Pharmaceuticals should be nationalized. The healthcare insurance companies, so-called healthcare insurance companies, they should be eliminated. Healthcare should be a human right. It should be a guaranteed right. It should be a legal right. There should be no profit making in it. There should be no element of healthcare that's treated as a commodity around which capitalists can make profits. As long as decision-making is premised on maximizing profits, we know that the healthcare system in the United States, even though it's the most expensive in the world, will be ineffective in profound ways. I mean, of course, there are many ways the U.S. healthcare system is effective, but it could be a thousand times more effective if it wasn't premised on profit. The absurdity of using capitalist metrics, including maximizing profit, as the criteria for the production of healthcare products or the delivery of healthcare services is not only a mistake, it's a crime. Speaking of crimes, I want to talk again about the military budget. The U.S. military budget consists of $858 billion for the military. That's the coming year. In the coming year, $858 billion, remember that number, $858 billion for the Pentagon, and $772 billion for everything else. Everything else, meaning housing, healthcare, education. So the military is the number one budget item in the discretionary budget. And, you know, the United States is an endless war. It has endless, well, not endless, it has a profound number of military installations around the world. It has about a thousand military bases in countries. Most of the countries of the world have some U.S. military base in them. The United States is protected by oceans on both sides, the Atlantic and the Pacific. It's the greatest military power. It's not at risk of being invaded. And yet it spends $858 billion. That's the official number. It's really quite a bit larger than that. But then you look at the Russian military budget, even as they're at war in Ukraine, it's about $65 billion, less than one-tenth of the American military budget. China, which is under threat from the United States, and the U.S. has identified Russia and China both as major powers that the U.S. will be eventually at war with, China spends one-fifth of what the United States spends on military spending. So again, we have a situation where the United States government has created a warfare state designed to make maximum profits for the military industrial complex, going to war endlessly, incentivizing war endlessly. And if you just look at the last 40 years, the U.S. invaded Grenada in 1983, Panama 1989, Iraq 1991, It went to war against Yugoslavia in 1995 and again in 1999. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001. It invaded Iraq in 2003. It went to war against Libya in 2011 and destroyed that government. It still has U.S. troops in Syria, and it was bombing Syria relentlessly for years, starting in 2013. Here you have endless U.S. military invasions, bombing campaigns, You have military bases all around the world. You have this gargantuan, bloated military budget that absorbs more than 
any other item in the federal discretionary budget. And the people of the United States are basically safe. You know, we're not going to be invaded by another country. Russia and China have no interest and have no capacity to invade the United States. Yes, there could be a terrorist action against the United States, like what happened on September 11, 2001. But that's far different from actually fearing a military intervention on the home soil. The last time that happened was the War of 1812, right? That was 210 years ago. So we have a military budget, an imperial system, an empire premised on militarism, premised on military spending. It's very, very good for the capitalists. It incentivizes war, meaning it disincentivizes peace. The working class in the United States pays for all of this through their tax dollars. And at the same time, the U.S. workers are told we must keep spending this amount of money because the other parties in the world, Iran or Russia or China or Syria or Cuba or Venezuela are such great threats and such great demons that the U.S. must keep allocating more and more of its national resources to Pentagon spending. We have to we have to expose that for what it is. Again, for those of us living in the New York area or close to New York, please join us on January 14th, 2023 at 12 noon at Times Square for that demo. I want to go to another story real quick. This is a heartbreaking story. In Afghanistan, the Taliban government announced that it is banning girls from attending elementary schools effectively instituting a total ban on the education of girls and women and dealing one of the most dramatic blows yet to women's freedom since seizing power last year. That was a quote from the Washington Post. In a gathering in Kabul, this is again from the Washington Post, in a gathering in Kabul with private school directors, clerics, and community representatives, Taliban officials on Wednesday also barred female staff, including teachers, from working in schools, closing off one of the few professions that had remained open to Afghan women under the new government, according to school principals who attended the meeting. They also said adult women can no longer visit mosques or attend religious seminaries. They quote a shopkeeper, Ghulam Hadari, a shopkeeper in Kabul. He said his daughter was sent home when she arrived at the tutoring center where she was attending classes in preparation for the coming semester in fifth grade. The daughter had hoped to study medicine and return to their home village in Ghazni province where there are no female doctors. My daughter has locked herself in a room since this morning and won't stop crying, Mr. Hadari said. All her hopes are broken. We are tired to death of this situation and only wonder when it will be over. Now, the Afghan education minister has defended this ban on the girls and women attending elementary school or higher education now. Here's the story. This is Associated Press. The minister of higher education in the Taliban government on Thursday defended his decision to ban women from universities, discussing the matter for the first time in public, Nida Mohammed Nadim said the ban issued earlier this week was necessary to prevent the mixing of genders in universities and because he believes some subjects being taught violated the principles of Islam. 
He said the ban was in place until further notice. In an interview with Afghan television, Nadim pushed back against the widespread international condemnation, which includes Muslim-majority countries such as Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Qatar. Nadim said that foreigners should stop interfering in Afghanistan's internal affairs. All right. This guy, by the way, the Minister of Education, is a former police chief and military commander in one of the provinces in Afghanistan. He personally opposes female education, saying that it's against Islamic and Afghan values. Now, the reason I wanted to mention this story in particular, as we're looking at some of the big stories in 2022, and again, this goes back to the idea of challenging the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative right in the U.S. media is that the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan, didn't succeed, and because the military didn't succeed, because we, the U.S., didn't win, the girls in Afghanistan and the women in Afghanistan are being subjected to this horrible mistreatment. Well, in one sense, you can say that's true. But in a bigger picture, in the more important picture, actually, it's not true. And why? Because it was the U.S. government, it was the Pentagon, and it was the CIA under both Republican and Democratic administrations that had gone to war starting in 1978 against a socialist, secular government in Afghanistan that was insistent that women and girls have the right to go to school. That the right of women and girls to go to school was not only in Kabul, but throughout the country. And that socialist government sent literacy workers and teachers and political organizers into the countryside, promoting the idea that this was a new day and that women were going to have rights, girls were going to have rights. Workers were going to have rights. They're going to have a right to a minimum wage, the right to form unions, that the peasants were, the landless peasants were going to get land, that the old patriarchal feudal style villages were going to be altered and radically transformed by bringing these sort of democratic, modern concepts into the countryside. But because that socialist government was socialist and because it was aligned diplomatically with the Soviet Union, which shared a long border with Afghanistan, the CIA carried out what was then, up until then, its biggest operation ever to support these reactionary forces, the so-called Mujahideen, including Osama bin Laden, who was funded and financed and, and extolled by not only the Pentagon and the CIA, but by all of the capitalist media in the United States, In 1980 or 79 and 80 and 81, the people of the United States were told these were the freedom fighters who were fighting against communism, fighting against socialism, fighting against the Soviet Union. They were the funded operatives, the proxies of the United States in its war against socialism. And ultimately, ultimately, it was the U.S. and the CIA intervention in Afghanistan that succeeded and toppling the socialist government in Afghanistan and ultimately allowing reactionaries like the Taliban and other similar warlord reactionary forces 
whose own interpretation of Islam is so thoroughly reactionary that it's even denounced by countries like Saudi Arabia. The U.S. was the contributing factor, not the contributing factor, the decisive factor in bringing these reactionaries into political life and into armed struggle against the socialist government. And when the U.S. intervened militarily in October 2001 against the Taliban government after the September 11th attacks that took down the World Trade Towers and also flew a plane into the Pentagon, when the U.S. invaded in October 2001, the Taliban were completely dispersed. And the Taliban actually offered to surrender through third parties, they offered to surrender to the U.S., to lay down their arms, to not fight back against the U.S. occupation in exchange for amnesty, meaning that they wouldn't be prosecuted or put in prison or executed. And Donald Rumsfeld, in November 2001, when the Taliban were offering to surrender, said, absolutely not. We're not going to negotiate with these forces. We're not going to negotiate with these terrorists. And then the U.S. invaded Iraq, was consumed by its own illegal occupation of Iraq, and the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq is coming up in a few months. March 19, 2023 will be the 20th anniversary. The U.S. poured all of its forces into Iraq in an illegal war to take down a government in Iraq that had nothing to do with September 11th, and the Taliban and the resistance forces were able to gain strength again. And because U.S. and NATO forces occupied Afghanistan, the occupation itself became a catalyst for more and more people in Afghanistan to want to join armed resistance groups to the NATO occupation forces, even if they disagreed with the Taliban. And so the Taliban came back. And 20 years after they offered to surrender, and 20 years after the U.S. refused to accept their surrender, they succeeded in toppling the government that the U.S. had backed for 20 years. And now you have the Taliban in power, denying women and girls the right to go to school. The U.S. continues to keep Afghans, the Afghan government's money as if that's going to somehow convince the Taliban to take a different route, which the only thing it does is strengthen the most hardline elements within the Taliban. So if we look at this situation in Afghanistan and recognize the heartbreaking, tragic nature of it, we shouldn't do it and immunize U.S. imperialism and the Pentagon and the CIA, who are the principal force causing this devolution of Afghan society. I just think it's so important for people to recognize the horror of what's going on in Afghanistan, but to also recognize that it's not only the Taliban, that the U.S. was indispensable to this process. So friends, we're going to wrap this short end of the year episode up. We want to thank you again, all of our patrons, for pitching in and helping keep this show going. We're not only podcasting on all streaming services, we're also now every Wednesday, a YouTube. we come out as a YouTube video on Breakthrough News. That's been major. You know, millions of people have downloaded this show. This has been, as I said, it's been a labor of commitment and a labor of love by people who really care about building a movement for social change. 
and we're doing our part and the others who are donating are doing their part. If you're listening to the show, liking the show, relying on the show, but not yet a subscriber, not yet a patron, become a patron and become part of this collective. We're doing it and we're doing it all together. All the very best to you and your family in this holiday season. And we look forward to 2023. And again, in 2023, we're going to focus on the big issues coming up in front of us. Again, major power conflict, which is now prioritized by the Pentagon targeting Russia and China for war. We have to stand against that. We have to stand with workers, especially low-wage workers who are fighting to unionize. We have to stand with women and all those who need abortion because abortion rights are on not only on the chopping block, but have been eviscerated in big parts of the country. Voting rights and the rights of the black community are on the chopping block. The LGBTQ community, all of those rights that have been won because of the earnest, hard-fought struggles of past decades, all of those are on the chopping block right now. And if we fight to defend them, fight to expand them, we can also make this a fight for radical transformations. Many, many times in history, the fight against right-wing overreaction, the fight against reaction has led to profound radical change. In other words, things become the opposite of what they seem to be on the surface. We can take the reactionary struggle by the ultra-right, by the capitalists, by the war makers, by the racists, by the misogynists, and turn that struggle into a revolutionary struggle for radical transformation. Together, we can do it. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.